As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. War is the mother of all inventions, and how we enter a war is really how we leave it. In the beginning of the First World War, the French cavalry rode into battle in bright blue and red Napoleonic-style outfits, donned with long crests of hair. They were subsequently torn apart. And just four years later, at the end of that war, we were witnessing coordinated plane, tank, and artillery assaults, a direct precursor to the German blitzkriegs we'd see years later. In World War II, we would enter with these tiny tractor-like tanks and biplanes still making up a large amount of many nations' air forces. And yet, six years later, we left with jet fighters, rockets, and nuclear weapons. And this is true even in a microcosm of that war. Even the Russians, who invaded Finland in 1939, left that conflict incredibly different to how they entered it. For the Russians, the war into Finland, or the Winter War, had a catastrophic first few months, losing columns of tanks and scores of men and being pummeled by a nation they assumed would surrender in just a few days. As that Winter War dragged on and the Russians suffered defeat after defeat, the Russians would learn from their early mistakes in the Finnish War and would take these lessons learned in the cold forests around Lake Ladoga and use it to break the Germans years later. War is where the rubber meets the road, where academic theories actually get tested. And for some, it's a smug, I told you so moment. But for others, it forces them back to the drawing board. So when war reignited on the European continent in February, many observers would begin watching the war closely. Amongst the Russia and Ukraine expert community, there were some things they got right. After 2014, most experts were sure that the Ukrainians would not act passively like they had before, and upon invasion, would fight back. But there are also many things that people got wrong. There are very few who could have accurately predicted the international support given to Ukraine, and that if you were to travel to places as far away as Australia or South Africa, that there will be Slava Ukraina bumper stickers all around town. The biggest miscalculation, though, I think was on the cyber front. We had seen the Russians in just these last few years shut down pipelines in the US, take down power grids in Ukraine, and sow disinformation in elections throughout the West. We all assumed these were dress rehearsals for the big event, the big event being an invasion of Ukraine. So when the first videos came back to us on February 24th of the Russian troops advancing from Crimea into southern Ukraine, we were all braced for a devastating cyber attack, one that would send Ukraine back to the Stone Age. And we get bracing, and bracing, and bracing, and then nothing. Nothing really happened. A couple of Ukrainian websites went down for a bit, and making calls to contacts in the ground was occasionally a bit annoying. But was that it? How was it that the great Russian cyber machine was doing less national damage than the average IT intern given admin privileges? So, what happened? Were the Russians bluffing this entire time? Were the Ukrainians just prepared to the nth waiting for this? Or is it that Russia is simply saving its cyber weapons for another moment? Well, that's the question we're going to be attempting to answer today. But before I get into it, I want to remind you that we always try and take a neutral tone here at the show, and we always try and put our own personal feelings about conflicts aside, 
and attempt to maintain journalistic objectivity at all times. And why I mention this is to get it on the record that in this piece we have got a senior commander of the Ukrainian Defense Force, and for integrity, we did make the same offer to his Russian equivalent, but unsurprisingly they declined the interview. But with that out of the way, let's ask, why were our expectations of the Russian cyber forces so off the mark? Have we wildly overestimated the Russians, or is there more to this story? And to help us answer that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. A Test Run for Terror Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Cyber is a pretty important part of the uh, Russian hybrid warfare inflicted against Ukraine. But maybe the main difference with 2014 is that uh, Ukraine is much more prepared and actually learned from its mistakes and previous Russian attacks that actually hit pretty hard. Prior to the uh, large-scale invasion on the February 24th, I would say that Russia again intensified its approach in attacking different parts of the Ukrainian uh, cyber infrastructure, uh, namely media, banking sphere, governmental websites. Russia tried pretty heavily to attack uh, to attack those establishments. But the results of these attacks were actually not that in extreme, extremely successful, simply because Ukraine was kind of prepared, collaborated with partners 24-7 and identified those, um, those threats and mitigated them. We cannot say for sure that uh, there were no successes from the Russian side. Um, so namely the Viasat uh, attack that actually provided some problems with the communication through the SAT comms with troops in the front line. But again, it was um, mitigated. Roman Osadchuk is Eurasia Specialist at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. Roman's research specializes in disinformation narratives and technology used throughout the region. He's also a specialist in information policy and the spread of disinformation. Prior to working at the DFR lab, he also held several positions inside the Ukraine Crisis Media Center, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today. There were attacks on the Ukrainian infrastructure, like namely against Ukrtelecom, it's uh, Ukrainian largest provider of the internet comms. So on if I remember correctly, they launched a cyber attack that actually was con- consisted of a few stages, but uh, still the whole attack was mitigated within one day and the next day almost all of the services were restored almost fully. So like in in sum, uh, it's still pretty important part of the hybrid warfare, but I would say that Ukraine is much more 
better prepared and suited for this kind of attacks since there are a lot of institutions, actors and companies are working in a concert to diminish the negative effects uh, of such attacks, identifying them, explaining them and debunking them. So many expected Russia to plunge Ukraine into blackouts nationwide from day one, as well as put a fire hose of disinformation right across the country. That's what the Russian doctrinal books tell us they would do, and that's what we all expected them to do. In the end, though, very little of that actually took place, and not a lot of it was as effective as we thought it might be. So did Russia throw away their standard playbook for the first parts of the Ukraine campaign, or was Ukraine just more prepared for what was coming? I mean, they are going pretty heavily. They are launching multiple attacks, phishing attempts uh, with some malware attached. So like if you download the file, click on it, you will download some uh, I don't know, wiper or some kind of other malware or actually providing access to your PowerShell and something like this. They are trying, but probably uh, we are not having an impression that they are like extremely effective or not given a lot of messages of them being successful with it because I know there is nothing to report on, right? So media are not actually going into reporting um, their failed uh, failed attempts and covering only maybe uh, I don't know successful attempts like with the Viasat or maybe Oper Telecom. But as I said, a lot of those attacks uh, got actually identified and mitigated pretty quickly. And also another thing is that Ukraine um, implemented a few really critical things to actually protect its uh, critical infrastructure and switched it towards the cloud infrastructure, making it actually harder for the hackers, Russian hackers, to inflict damage on them. But as I said, they are they're trying and poking around, uh, launching different attacks. Russians are trying hard, but again, the cooperation between different actors and some preparatory steps of switching the infrastructure to the cloud and also uh, moving some of the infrastructure uh, to the outside of the zone of conflict or where they could be inflicted by, you know, shelling or bombing. It's actually helping uh, in making the life uh, of Russian hackers harder uh, in achieving their results. We'll talk a bit more about the benefits of moving Ukrainian data to overseas servers a bit later, but for now I want to lay out the other side a little bit better as well, and that would mean talking about the GRU. As a rough equivalent, the US has Cyber Command, which sits underneath Army Command, and is usually used for these sorts of operations. Whereas in Russia, the main actor in this theatre is the GRU, who roughly translated would be something like Chief Intelligence Office. The GRU, which focuses on disinformation and information and cyber warfare, as well as many other operations, has been responsible for the majority of state-sanctioned cyber attacks coming out from Russia. And after showing off their cyber capabilities in previous attacks on Ukraine and Estonia and the US, they were seen by many as a major Russian force. Some analysts even anointed them the title that they would be as effective as the tanks when a real war actually came to pass. In reality though, when the rubber hit the road, have they actually been the tip of the Russian spear? Or are they now really just taking a back seat to the Russian tank and artillery commanders? GRU as uh, Russian military as well, uh, that being dubbed as the second largest and mighty armies in the world, air quotes. So we saw that actually what's there on the paper is not always actually corresponds with the reality. 
So it's not going without uh, telling that they've conducted some really heavily heavy attacks right in the past. So they are pretty harmful and they could inflict harm on different parts of the um, infrastructure. Uh, they could be extremely effective, but there is always a way to be at least somehow prepared to mitigate those attacks or identify them quick and therefore not given a lot of the room for them to develop uh, and make it even uh, rougher or dangerous attacks. So another thing here is that uh, GRU probably is not an exception within the Russian uh, whole military or intelligence branch of the other uh, Russian government that is heavily inflicted and impacted by corruption. Uh, so as we saw with Russian military equipment, when I know pilots uh, stitching their regular GPS devices within their uh, within the cockpit of, of their airplanes or maintenance of their military equipment, and that actually been heavily impacted by the corruption. So I think in this specific case, it did not invest all of those money and all of those resources that they had into making uh, their cyber capabilities and other capabilities more dangerous than they are in reality. Yeah, effective defense and um, corruption in Russian army. So it's still scary actor. They're still capable of a lot of things. Uh, but those uh, two things are actually help to mitigate the risks and make it less dangerous than it is. So the supporters of this war on either side are pretty transparent. And the US is openly supplying the Ukrainians with weapons and assistance. Even countries as far away as Australia are sending weapons and equipment into Ukraine. Yet the war in real fighting continues to maintain its geographical confinements for the most part. Yes, we are seeing Ukrainian missiles attacking Russian border cities like Belgorod. And yes, we are seeing Russia launching its attacks from Belarus's sovereign territory. But cyber-wise, both sides seem to be keeping a somewhat local doctrine even with cyber being really hard to attribute and prove who did it. Ukraine doesn't seem to be trying to take down large-scale power grids inside Russia, and Russia isn't attacking US pipelines on a weekly basis inside America. So with cyber warfare being so hard to attribute, why are both sides seeming to limit the scope of their cyber activities to within the geographic confines of Ukraine? Basically, as I said, the attribution is pretty hard, but you could guess from the patterns, right? So um, if the objective of the attack is, um, I know, to inflict damage, but not to receive some kind of uh, remuneration or some payment, right, to ransom. So you would probably kind of can guess that this whole kind of thing is, is being done to actually inflict some damage because of the ongoing war. Uh, there is definitely a way to find out that uh, basically if some actions are actually helping one of the sides, it's logical thing to uh, think that those attacks were inflicted by this side that's been uh, benefiting from it. Um, also, there, there are a few things and history of different tools and approaches used by some actors. So the cyber threats, most of them in cyber attacks being actually documented and attributed to some specific groups, even though not always tied specifically to the government. It's the case actually with Russia that they are using some proxy groups that are not actually attributed directly to the government, but they are doing something in favor of the government. So I think uh, in this specific case, Russian groups 
that are being doing a lot of things against um, Ukrainian infrastructure, and those attacks are being actually documented well. So if they're coincident with the patterns of their behavior, and also some of the cyber attacks are actually coinciding with the uh, kinetic. Uh, warfare that Russia is inflicting against Ukraine. So basically, some of the attacks might actually coincide coincide within the days, within a few days, with the actual shelling of a specific object. A lot of analysts theorize that tools like Pegasus, an Israeli-designed cyber weapon that allows its user to get inside, record, and operate almost any smartphone anywhere in the world, would make a large impact in this particular conflict particularly after Pegasus has been sold by the Israelis to somewhat Russia-friendly nations such as Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, and India. From what the open source material indicates at least, we haven't seen nearly the dramatic impact from these particular tools that many thought there would be. So can you take us through why Pegasus was speculated to be so impactful and the impact it's actually had on the conflict in practice? So the Pegasus is the software. <laughs> it's a specific software that's being installed without a person consent or acknowledgement uh, to the mobile device and actually uh, send uh, a lot of data and provide uh, full access to the phones uh, remotely to the people who send this specific software to the um, to the target. So there, it was a huge scandal last year, I guess, when a lot of uh, civil society activists, uh, politicians found out that their devices were inflicted by this specific malware. Um, so I think that this specific tool was not extremely useful in Ukrainian in the war, simply because there are a lot of many other reconnaissance and surveillance types of system or tricks that any like Russian side could use to spy on the um, on the military. So namely, uh, these attacks they are being targeted. So like you need to know the phone number, you need to send at least an SMS message, and the person should click on it, and then the download will be there. So this is actually a few extra steps to um, to infect the, the phones. And you know, there are a number of different military and soldiers fighting on the front line. So it's not that effective. I mean, the GSM uh, jamming or I know just capturing the cell towers and understanding who is located where and the usage of uh, drones for the surveillance and reconnaissance is much more effective and also set imagery is much more effective than let's say basically using some time and high high cost software with a partial uh, rate of success so like you need to be successful so that the person would click on link and load it and will uh, have his or her phone actually powered on. So there's there's like a lot of steps should be and precautions should be made and taken into consideration to use the um, use the Pegasus, while you could use much more easier and more straightforward thing for the uh, similar capabilities. Of course, you will not get like the control over the communications through the WhatsApp and uh, something like this. But when we are talking about the front line, I think that uh, the internet connection there is not that 
you know, powerful anyway. So the only exception is satellite pumps, but that's rather the um, exclusion than the rule. So exception than the rule. It's much more easier to use the GSM towers to capture some calls. And actually it's been widely used by Ukrainian side for sure. Uh, probably you've seen or heard that Ukrainian special forces actually capturing the GSM calls of Russian soldiers and occupiers to their relatives in Russia and actually post them online so you could listen to them. While the Russian side is not doing this extensively and openly, you could probably safely think that they are definitely doing this, uh, the similar similar things, trying to listen into the comms of Ukrainian side and actually doing it much more uh, in effective scale than it would be to trying to actually inflict the Pegasus into this specific case. Russia still has the ability to roll out programs like this though, and many have speculated they already have, because the sandbit is that many wouldn't know if they already have the malware on their phone ready to go. And whilst yes, in most cases you would need someone to click a link or download something, let's go through a real example of how this sort of malware gets onto people's phones unsuspectingly. And as our example, let's talk about the Uyghur Chinese who come from Xinjiang and are now living abroad. Uyghur Chinese, whose personal data is still of very great interest to the government back in Beijing. Most Uyghurs living abroad, though, are aware that Beijing is either trying to get into their phone or wants to look at things in their phone. And the vast majority of them are smart enough to not click any links or download anything they're not aware of. But investigations done a few years ago and reports released found that whilst China did send the standard phishing links of click here to win a prize, they also did things like embed their malware within most of the downloadable Uyghur language keyboards online. So if Uyghurs wanted to communicate with people back home in the Uyghur language, they had to download one of these keyboards that likely had the malware somewhere embedded in it. So as soon as that keyboard hits their phone, China had their data. So even if most Ukrainians and Russians are very confident they're too clever to click on a you've won a thousand rubles link, there may be other ways that both Kiev and Moscow can get inside the communication devices being used on the front line. But for now, let's focus on the main two. Earlier on, you mentioned cell towers, and we've been talking about malware. So how can countries use things like cell towers and malware to actually disrupt and impede communications of the opposing army? Can you actually walk us through the process? The one who controls the cell tower is actually having like a lot of different information based on the different devices that are trying to connect to the specific cell tower. So the, our smartphones or mobile phones, they are like constantly connecting to those cell towers and sending uh, different packets and trying to find the best signal out there. So basically, if you have uh, three different cell towers in control and the phone is between them and trying to connect to the three of them at the same time, you could triangulate and kind of identify within a precision of a few meters the exact location of a specific user. So basically, if you see that there is probably a lot of different users in one spot and they are using the comms and or connecting at a specific time of the day, or you see that there is like there were now uh, no no users at a specific location, but then at some point there was like, I don't know, 30, 50 at the same time and they are popping there with a regular frequency, it might basically indicate probably that there are some people there. And again, you might probably, uh, we're using some other means of QCOMs like, I don't know, drone uh, surveillance and reconnaissance to uh, confirm whether it's military or not. 
that's that's the one way to do it another one is basically when you get an access to the cell tower you actually access uh, most of the metadata uh, being done by the users of the specific cell tower meaning that uh, when people are making calls uh, or sending sms messages all of the metadata like the length of the call uh, whom this call was made to and the same goes with the messages they are actually pretty easily this data being collected and might be used to find some patterns some resume of the day so what what people are doing and when they are doing and again if there is some kind of schedule you could actually also guess there is probably some people that are really into the strict uh, orders and um, basically uh, schedule of the day so basically soldiers and finally i think that you could even create some proxy gsm towers to catch and even probably intercept the calls and read the sms messages that those uh, folks are uh, actually sending or if you wanna just to i know jam all of the connections you could do uh, on the opposite directions you could uh, actually bring in special hardware that would jam all of the signals or if they wanted to jam some walkie-talkies or portable shortwave radio uh, comms or you want to listen to them if they're not encrypted of course so you could use again some systems to try to penetrate those communications and listen to them as probably you've seen that some of the users were actually successful and in march they even penetrated this radio comms of russian troops uh, which uh, proves the point that this is definitely possible not only to listen to them uh, to specific frequencies, but also to actually send some um, destructive messages that would interfere with the messages and make those comms harder on top of just jamming them. The cyber operations launched pre-war or even early war have been very different to what we're seeing being launched at the moment. So what developments do you see coming up in this theater as the war continues to drag along? It's really hard to predict but as of now, we're like six months into this uh, large scale invasion and more than eight years into the war itself. And we could probably, uh, if we're going retrospectively, we could say that while the cyber wasn't you know, the main player in all of this thing, so it was always second in the, um, the, kinet the kinetic warfare. Um, so it's probably would continue this way, but it doesn't mean that it becomes less dangerous uh, or less destructive. So one attack like the Notpetya one could actually provide tons of uh, and a lot of damages to the people and their uh, systems and inflict severe damage. As for the Russian side, I think that um, probably they partially did not expect that it might take too long. Uh, their invasion, so uh, a few different uh, indicators suggest that they were preparing for something short, uh, like Blitzkrieg in a few days, uh, but it didn't happen. Uh, so it, it mean that, means that now they actually have to reinvent their tactics and some other modes or at least somewhat adapt to what's happening on, on the field. So I guess that we would see at least the same intensity of different attacks, so like a few attacks per month. So this will continue. They would try poking around, hoping to find some vulnerabilities and some cracks in, into defense. 
uh, to get I don't know, um, to use this advantage if they find found some to inflict some damages. Uh, a lot of people are afraid of actually fall and winter season since experts predict that Russians would try to to somehow disrupt their uh, heating and gas distribution systems in Ukraine so that people would be freezing in their apartments. So maybe some of the attacks would be uh, actually aimed at this infrastructure. So we'll see how um, how it goes. Uh, it's hard, hard to predict, like we cannot see the future, unfortunately. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the media reporting from the front lines focuses on the tank battles and drone strikes, and the cyber front seems to go wildly underreported. Yet, there's a lot of ground that can be won or lost on this particular front. And here is where everyone from China to Iran are trying out new weapons under the anonymity of the cyber front. But there are some people following this front very closely, who have first-hand knowledge of the offences being carried out right under our nose. And to talk to us about that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Modems and Machine Guns We'll start with the fact that the massive cyber attacks uh, started before uh, Russia invaded in February this year. So we had one massive attack on the 14th of January and then on the 15th of February 2022. And the goal of these attacks was to, uh, to make the population panic and disrupt their trust to the state and make them believe that the state is not ready to face the enemy. Brigadier General Gyuri Shakhol is head of the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection for the nation of Ukraine and the general in charge of the Ukrainians' information and cyber defenses. He calls into us direct from the front lines and speaking through a translator. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. I also want to note that the cyber attacks that happened before the war were not successful and uh, the enemy uh, did not manage to steal data. They did manage to change a few web pages, but they were quickly restored to normal thanks to our partners. After the start of the war, the enemy tried to attack mobile providers such as Viaset, Telecom, etc. And uh, they tried to disrupt uh, the access of the civilians to mobile network. When, um, um, when they captured, uh, when they would capture territory 
they would uh, try to physically, they would immediately turn off the connection and try to physically destroy this mobile uh, stations that provided a connection to deny the civilians the information on the ground and how Ukraine is fighting the enemy. How important has the cyber front been to Ukraine's defense so far? This is the first uh, cyber warfare um, and uh, cyberspace is uh, for uh, battleground and um, cyberspace is used uh, as much as rockets and uh, kinetic or means of kinetic warfare. And their main task was to destroy civilian infrastructure. And just like they try to destroy civilian infra- the objects of civilian infrastructure and make as much damage, inflict as much damage as possible uh, to civilians, disrupting medical services uh, and other critical life services in the cyberspace, they end up the same thing. Yeah. The Russians launched a very effective cyber campaign against Ukraine in 2014 and 2015 taking down communications and power grids all across the country. A lot of analysts were assuming we'd see similar kinds of chaos in the opening stages of this new offensive. So how did the early attacks we saw in February this year compare to the cyber attacks Russia launched in 2014 or 2015? The main difference is that in 2014 and 2015, Ukraine was not ready for cyber warfare. And um, yes, the power grids, um, the power was out and uh, the virus that was used to do that was the same virus that was used in 2022, but a bit modified. And um, in 2022, um, Russia did not manage to um, do what it wanted uh, in terms of um, energy outage. And, uh, and that's that's because in the last years we've managed to build a system that can um, repulse the enemy's attacks, and um, that's because of the international community of the support of the international community. Um, now Ukraine is showing that it can repulse the attacks of the enemy decent in a decent way, and even mount the attacks towards Russia. With Ukrainian cyber forces going on the offense now, what sort of infrastructure do you think you'd be targeting? Uh, Ukraine right now is um, not mounting coordinating attacks towards Russia, but cyber activists uh, in around the world, uh, from around the world and from Ukraine, um, are doing that and uh, privately. And from the beginning of the war, we had 4,000 activists in the cyber that engaged in cyber warfare from around the world and from Ukraine as well, um, because they reacted to the um, to the Russian attack and targeted Russian infrastructure and even military logistics. But that was a private wish of people, of individuals. With the officially sanctioned offences mostly being targeted Russian troops and infrastructure inside occupied territory, what sorts of infrastructure are you actually going after? Is it communications? Is it power? Is it intel? What are the main targets here? 
Тимчасово окуповані території це території України, ми вживаємо всіх Temporary occupied territories are Ukraine and we make all the necessary measures to defend the citizens and to free the territories as soon as possible, including to free the territories from the communication that's provided by the enemy, by the occupiers. Recently, we've implemented uh, regulatory, regulatory acts that make possible the, the def- uh, defense of the temporary occupied territories uh, in terms of defending them with, uh, from the telephone connection Russia provides, including some uh, communication tools and systems that Russia uh, is illegally uh, implementing because we need to defend um, Ukrainian infrastructure, critical Ukrainian infrastructure on those ter- territories. So we make everything uh, that's in our, in our power to defend uh, the infrastructure and the citizens. So the Ukrainian military is working and getting support from other nations at the moment, and particularly in the cyber front, whether it be nations like Poland or Slovakia that you've signed cybersecurity declarations with, or the US providing operational assistance and resources, as well as support, can you take us through what sort of help you are receiving at the moment and what sort of help you would like to receive in the future? This cyber warfare showed that it can be stood up against only with, only together, only with the help of the international community. So we are cooperating not only with Poland and Slovakia, but also with the USA, the UK, France, Denmark, etc. And uh, the majority of these cooperations started after the 14th of January. And we receive from them technical support in towards um, the making the data secure and towards the secure cybersecurity systems, towards making the cybersecurity systems um, work. Ukraine is now on, at the forefront, not only on the of the war on the ground, but also in the cyberspace. And all the the whole world uh, sees it as it is that if Ukraine falls on the ground and if Ukraine falls in the cyberspace, it um, it will mean disastrous consequences for other countries. So we need support and we need to resist. Right now, uh, the most important part is to, to gather indicators um, of the attacks and we collaborate with other countries at which the attacks are aimed, uh, the countries that support Ukraine, for example, the US. And um, we share our experience, we share knowledge. So we know you have international assistance in your corner, but are you seeing a similar thing on the other side? Are you seeing other nations involved in the cyber war here in Ukraine? Are nations like China or North Korea or Belarus also in this domain fighting on behalf of Russia? We consider Russia and Belarus as one front. Belarus is used for um, rocket uh, strikes. The rocket strikes are made from uh, the territory of Belarus 
and uh, in uh, Belarus, uh, Russian troops and um, planes are positioned. Uh, as for China, Iran, uh, North Korea, etc., uh, yes, we have some attacks from these countries, but we don't have evidence that these are coordinated attacks and that those uh, the hackers that are doing that are doing that uh, are sanctioned from the state because there are hackers that um, mountain attacks in the in the commercials area commercial space market spaces are used for cyber attacks but it is likely not the politics of the state we just saw the sixth month anniversary of russia launching their large february offensive into ukraine and we know Russia has been launching cyber attacks on Ukraine this entire time. But how do the attacks launched in February compare to the attacks we're seeing today? From the start of the war, we have recorded around 1,500 attacks on the Ukrainian infrastructure. The most powerful attacks were at the start of the war when uh, they had time to prepare for them. But they, these attacks were repulsed um, by our cybersecurity services uh, systems. And uh, right now, the intensity of the attacks is the same, but uh, the quality of them is much lesser uh, because they don't have time anymore for preparation. And they also don't have time for defending Russian infrastructure in Russia, because as uh, our experience showed us, uh, they are not as protected as we had thought or as they had told us. Are Russia launching the cyber attacks as the main thrust of these offensives in cities like Kherson or Kramatorsk, or have the attacks been playing more of a reactionary role to the main strike forces moves? We saw the coordination of the attacks and we identified certain behavior that Russia uses and Russia coordinates uh, rocket strikes and uh, attacks towards the public authorities and the uh, civilian authorities that govern. The goal of these attacks is to make the public panic. Um, and if, uh, for example, if uh, people don't um, get immediate messages after strikes, it's good for the enemy, whose goal is to disrupt the trust of the public. So when it comes to the cyber domain, what are your forces' main goals here? What will be the targets going forward? As a result of um, this war on the ground and in the cyberspace, we hope to achieve victory. To, as, and the result of uh, this war should be a unified world cybersecurity system. And we hope that the, this kind of system will cast Russia into the Stone Age. And that right now we, we witness that uh, the majority of cybersecurity companies are leaving Russia or have left Russia. And we've got only a few months until companies in Russia will not be able to upgrade or get the hardware they need to function. We want to separate Russia from the civilized world and make it impossible 
for any country to mount massive cyber attacks to inflict damage on civilian infrastructures because civilians should not be targeted and should not suffer because of cyber attacks. Uh, Russia is a strong uh, opponent. It is not wise to undervalue Russia's skills, especially in the cyberspace. But um, thanks to the international community, thanks to our state service of special communication and other organizations, uh, we have managed to repulse the attacks. Cyber warfare during peacetime is mostly used to hack emails and attack infrastructure, as well as launch ransomware upon your opponent. But on the battlefield, it has a very different use. Sometimes it's used for jamming communications, making it difficult to coordinate troops and attacks, and other times it's used to gather data on where your enemy troops are. In addition, sometimes it's used to shower the other side with propaganda. But as much as we understand the concepts, operationally, how are these attacks carried out? And how successful have they been so far in this war? Is cyber warfare the new tip of the spear, or just the weapon you use when you aren't allowed to use tanks? Well, to answer that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Where the rubber meets the road. It was probably less that, you know, we overestimated Russian capabilities than that we broadly overestimate how those capabilities can be incorporated into conventional warfare. All of the constraints of timing and control and impact that come into play when you've got conventional warfare happening alongside a lot of these operations simply don't lend themselves well the same way as during, you know, quote unquote, peacetime. Gavin Wilde is a senior fellow in the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing on Russia and information warfare, as well as examining the strategic challenges posed by cyber and influence operations. Previously, Wilde also served on the National Security Council as a director for Russia, Baltic and Caucasus Affairs, and in addition to managing country-specific portfolios, he also focused on formulating and coordinating foreign malign influence, election security and cyber policies. Wilde also served as a senior analyst in leadership roles at the National Security Agency and served as a linguist in the Federal Bureau of Investigation for over a decade. So we're absolutely thrilled to have him on the show today. Some of what we saw was to be expected. A lot of these wiper attacks, a lot of um, efforts against critical communications infrastructure. But all that said, I think it would be important to remember that much of what appears to have been the, the Kremlin's grand plan was to a quick decapitation operation and to kind of impose a puppet regime after a quick and easy bout of armed conflict. So I think there was an element of their effort that to, to make sure they didn't break what they were about to buy, essentially. Uh, and so I think that's perhaps why you saw less of that. Uh, but I think there's also a universe in which with the imperatives of a conventional war, you needed to throw a lot of cyber capability that perhaps they just didn't have on hand in the timeframes that were given them. And certainly I think some of the bureaucratic rivalries and competition for talent between the military, the GRU, the FSB, the SVR, uh, I think 
you're certainly seeing that, you know, the, the well that they could go to for highly impactful offensive cyber capabilities may have simply not been as deep as we assumed it might have been. I understand the Russian logic of holding back the really destructive cyber attacks in the early stages of this conflict. From the reports we have available, it seems like the Russians thought they would be able to put in a puppet government fairly quickly. And as everyone knows, you don't smash the windshield of a car you're about to steal. But now that Russia knows the quick installation of puppet government is effectively off the table, how has their cyber strategy changed? So I think the important thing to remember from the US or maybe the broader Western perspective about offensive cyber capabilities is that we are very heavily indexed on the technical. Um, and I take this back kind of to the 90s when a lot of the thinking around the, the quote unquote CIA triad, the confidentiality, integrity and availability, we were thinking in cyber and about cyber in terms of, of networks and the integrity of networks and data transmission. Um, that's not really how Moscow and, and Russia uh, that was not the center of their thinking about, you know, cyber issues. They thought about it in much more holistic terms, really starting more with the human psyche than with network integrity. And the reason for that, I think they, they looked at what happened certainly in uh, their military campaigns against um, separatists in Chechnya in the middle in the mid 90s. They looked at U.S. operations against Kosovo in the late 90s, and they saw that local sentiment as well as global public sentiment, that was really the battle space that they saw that Russia uh, would quickly run into trouble, both from a domestic perspective. Obviously, this is something that President, then President Boris Yeltsin wrestled with is public sentiment when they're seeing all the brutality on television. Uh, with what's happening in Chechnya. And then they saw kind of global public sentiment turning against Serbian leaders and the atrocities in, in Kosovo. And so they really think about this from the cognitive out in the way, in the same way as, you know, the US and the West thinks about this as the network out. And so I think maybe some of that unmet expectation was due to the fact that Russia has probably relatively invested heavily um, in the cognitive and perception management and information operations side of the, the cyber coin, as it were, because they think in terms of the technical and the psychological as kind of two sides of the same coin. And they, they very well may have, for the purposes of this conflict in Ukraine, they very well may have simply over-indexed on the cognitive. And from what I can see, there's just not much evidence that it's actually working in their favor. Um, you know, there's studies out of Cambridge where even within occupied territories in Donbass, public sentiment is not necessarily uh, sympathetic to a lot of the, the narratives that the Kremlin has tried to push over, certainly since 2014, about... Nova Russia and all of these different projects. And so I think, especially now that, you know, post-2016, that the Western uh, technology companies and social media platforms and civil society have become really wise to the tradecraft 
and some of these local um, targeted populations are kind of immune and inoculated against some of these tactics by cut these cutouts and proxies of the GRU or the FSB, they, they simply may have put a lot of their eggs in the cognitive basket. And so when it came to the really sophisticated technical side, you know, everybody might've been looking to the GRU and the GRU may have kind of, uh, at this point in the war, kind of been standing there empty handed with not much else to, to offer. And so I, again, I'm not sure there's so much that's unknowable here, but I think we should allow ourselves the possibility that the well has, has maybe run dry. What about Russia's information troops? What can you tell us about them and their impact on this conflict so far? The information troops that were stood up sometime around 2017 and conceptualized just a few years prior to that, they're still in their relative infancy. I mean, when you think about it, they're, they're kind of a thought of as a rough analog to U.S. Cyber Command. But these information troops units are, are probably still in their relative infancy. You know, there's some reports that they were uh, used for the 2016 military exercises in Russia's southwest. But it kind of remains to be seen the degree to which they are, are, are have proven a capable fighting force uh, able to interact in kind of a combined arms way in any conflict. And if, you know, aside from the GRU, it remains to be seen whether these um, information troops have made a showing. Uh, are they active? Uh, if they are, what value add do they bring? Uh, but from what I can read, a lot of the impetus behind even the stand-up of the information troops, the fact of them kind of being a rough analog to the Cyber Command or GCHQ notwithstanding, some of the initial thinking about the need for an information troops under the military umbrella was much more about having a counter-propaganda apparatus um, there was not really much about an offensive cyber capability in the way that we were probably expecting in to see in Ukraine. An area I spent a lot of time studying and looking into is Central Asia. And there was an interesting trend unfolding in the region I'd like to ask you about. In the early stages of this offensive, we saw Russian propaganda in these regions being really overt, pressing the message on conventional platforms, megaphoning a, this is an internal issue between Russia and Ukraine, not the world. No one else should be involved or worried about it. But around the end of the first month going into April, there seemed to be a bit of a shift in how the propaganda was being rolled out and a kind of giving up with the Russians instead moving their efforts towards either hyper-targeting specific people or propagandizing to really niche, often far left or far right groups, or moving most of their efforts towards the local Telegram, WhatsApp, WeChat or VK messenger groups. So why do you think the Kremlin made this move? Was it a deliberate more bang for your buck strategy or was it just an adaptation as stations like RT were taken off air in many countries? You know, that's a great question. I think there is a, you know, it's certainly possible that they're realizing that you're in this era now when they've been so thoroughly exposed across the board, not only in, in the digital space, but certainly, you know, some of these assassination squads, et cetera, across Europe that have really been uh, subject to the worst that, you know, Bellingcat and some of the uh, Western intelligence services can throw at them. I, I do wonder whether they've reached this point where you're not really going to find any new converts. 
Um, the best you can do is simply kind of consolidate your gains among those who are already sympathetic uh, towards your cause. I think that's certainly um, perhaps what we might be seeing in in the so-called global south, where some of the propagandists had a little bit um, or been a little bit had a more permissive environment in which to operate. Um, but as far as kind of the covertness or the clandestinity of, of their operations, I don't, I don't know the degree to which that's merely, you know, th that that's part of a grander strategy or whether that's simply a byproduct of inertia. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. Many members of the Ukrainian military have openly stated they would like to see a lot more cyber attacks being carried out by themselves or their Western allies at the infrastructure inside Russia. Although even with cyber being so hard to definitively attribute, most of the attacks carried out are seemingly taking place within the boundaries of Ukraine. What is stopping the West from carrying out larger cyber attacks against the Russian infrastructure? Is it that there's a desire not to escalate the situation, or is there a worry about galvanizing the Russian public, or is it that cyber defenses within Russia are much stronger than those within the recently taken territory in Ukraine? I think particularly amidst a conventional armed conflict, you're going to have a lot of <laughs> certainly lawyers uh, within you know any government agency kind of scratching their heads about the law of armed conflict and international humanitarian law that comes into play in a really unique way right now. Uh, certainly when we're seeing what's happening with the IT cyber army of Ukraine and Anonymous and Killnet and some of these hacktivist collectives that are fighting, if not on direct behalf of, uh, at least with the tacit uh, endorsement of their host governments or oftentimes with targeting information being fed to them directly from the government kind of out in the open in the case of uh, the IT cyber army of Ukraine it does pose a lot of very thorny issues, not only about who is considered a combatant in the legal sense, but then in the event that there is some kind of, uh, you know, piece of critical infrastructure that is hit either intentionally or inadvertently, and there's backlash or ramification or, you know, counteroffensive in cyberspace, uh, you know, that that becomes a very difficult issue from a geopolitical perspective. And as we've seen from you know, Lloyd's of London and other cyber insurers, it gets even more thorny when it comes down to how do you insure against those types of, of operations that, uh, that hit your critical infrastructure or your, your business community. Uh, and so my sense at least is that there's going to be a lot of folks that are probably um, thinking very hard before big splashy showings that critical infrastructure can be held at risk while this armed conflict is going on uh, in Ukraine. One hopes that this conflict may galvanize a little bit more progress in that arena, but I think if anything, we're in for more fog, uh, not less, as, as regards kind of who is who in the zoo as far as cyber combatants in in the context of a broader war. There are a number of think pieces coming out at the moment with the opinion that, well, this conflict has shown us that the cyber warfare is great, 
but still pales in comparison to the usefulness of conventional forces, that it's more of a peacetime weapon. What would you say to that? I think that's broadly on point. I would kind of describe myself as someone who's a little bit more sympathetic to the the skeptic, uh, the skeptical uh, side of the the academic writing on on cyber conflict. All that being said, sometimes it does really boil down to kind of a debate about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But I would say in general, I see a lot of this cyber activity as more an extension of an intelligence, counterintelligence, or um, political warfare and subversion, uh, more an expansion of that sphere than I do necessarily that cyber is a natural expansion of the conventional warfighting sphere. Because again, I think it just suffers from too many of the limitations around timing and efficacy and degree of wieldability amidst, you know, bombs falling and, and, and shots being fired. But all of that said, that I, I think there's still room for that to be uh, proven catastrophically wrong in coming days. So I, I, I offer it with that caveat always because you, you certainly never know what's, uh, what's coming. One of the major blows to Russia here was that the big private social media and software companies like Facebook and Microsoft have begun cracking down on Russian disinformation, deplatforming a lot of Russia's megaphones. So firstly, why do you think these private companies have chosen to take a side here, where traditionally companies like Facebook tend to stay neutral in these sort of conflicts? And how much of an impact do you think this has had on Moscow's disinformational reach? I think in a lot of ways, certainly in Eastern Europe, uh, those countries are in a lot of ways far ahead of where the U.S. and the rest of, uh, you know, the transatlantic community probably started on, on disinformation in that they understood that this was kind of a societal level problem, that this wasn't something for which there would be a ready techni technological fix, that it, content moderation would only get you so far. I think one of the best things that the, the United States had at its disposal that it could kind of pre-bunk, if you will, the narratives coming out of the Kremlin. And I think the same goes for the tech companies and the social media platforms. Um, so my hat is off to them when they certainly share some of those insights and lean forward and give the rest of the community uh, uh, an opportunity to weigh some of the evidence for themselves and, and see some of the perfidy um, up close and personal that's coming out of the Kremlin. If they can't win the battle of in public opinion, the, in the court of public opinion, if they can't win that battle, they will certainly just settle for confusion. And I think that's where their disinformation operations have kind of evolved over the past, you know, half decade or decade of, of uh, certainly post, you know, the MH17 shoot down. They're really beyond trying to convince anyone of anything, and it's more just trying to shoot enough chaff into the information ecosystem that people start to question whether there's anything that's believable in the first place. Um, the good news is I think that has, you know, that is counterproductive to their interests in the long term, but I think it creates opportunity certainly for the United States and the West and, and a lot of uh, stakeholders who 
who certainly in the private sector who operate on public credibility to kind of demonstrate uh, their value by kind of pre-bunking and, and participating in a healthier information ecosystem and showing that there's an alternative to that, that really cynical approach. It's all well and good for these companies to pull out of Russia and stop taking Russian money for advertising. Russia isn't that big a market. Again, its GDP is roughly the size of Australia's, and we aren't a global superpower by any stretch of the imagination. But what do you think would happen if China carried out a similar invasion on Taiwan, for example? Are the same companies in the future likely to be as bold and pull all of their materials and investments out of China in response to Chinese aggression? Or will the size of the Chinese market for these products simply make it too painful to these companies like Microsoft or Meta to take a similar stance of a Chinese aggression that they've been able to take over Russian aggression? Do you know, one would certainly hope, um, but that's that again co- goes back to my kind of question of how replicable this was or how replicable this would be in a, in a different conflict or different context. A lot of the kind of self-selection out of the Russian market was less, you know, to my eye, the sanctions regime and more some terrible catastrophe that creates an inflection point where companies really have to question what they stand for uh, from a not only geopolitical perspective, but from a really a moral perspective. Uh, and that's where I see some, you know, some real value in the, the conversations around um, ESG that, that, you know, the corporate world's kind of come around on in the past few years of like, it's very difficult to, to claim neutrality um, in these types of situations. All that said, we've, you know, we've known about the atrocities and we've known about a lot of atrocities in, in Xinjiang province and, you know, human rights abuses in a lot of markets that simply hasn't had the, as of yet, has not had the effect that one would hope for, for companies to kind of say, hey, this is, we're not going to be, we're not going to be a part of this. You know, that's a long way of saying, I, I'm not sure that, that we would see the same kind of exodus from from the Chinese market in the event of a, a clash with Taiwan. Do you think that a lot of countries are taking notes on how cyber warfare has been carried out here? And there may be a lot of restructuring of their cyber capabilities after this war, taking into account what they've seen work and not work within the Ukrainian battle space? I think it does raise very fundamental questions about the degree to which cyber can be incorporated into combined arms without very clear doctrines, very clear kind of order of battle. One of the major lessons it, it says to me, it, you know, the, the Russians didn't follow a lot of what they had written down. Their planning was clearly pretty tightly held and slipshod. Their delegation of, you know, authority, operational authority downward was almost non-existent. And so if anything, I think it reinforced the degree to which if you're going to try to incorporate cyber effects in a combined arms campaign, there's certainly a lot of characteristics that absolutely have to be in place as far as your command structure. Whilst it's the generals in Ukraine and Russia pushing the pieces around the board, the entire rest of the world is watching with bated breath, taking down every single note of what's happening here in the cyber domain. We can see the impact this conflict's having on countries' decision-making, with things like the success of the Turkish Bayraktar drones, 
at the start of the war, they were seen as an alright drone, but now have proven themselves to be the, some of the best bang for your buck, with countries across the globe placing orders for fleets of them. So will we see other countries taking note of the cyber domain here? Will we see China taking away the notes that their first cyber strikes against Taiwan need to be devastating? Will we see the US speculate that cyber defense was a huge buildup for very little payoff? And will we see private companies be ready for when the next war breaks out somewhere in the globe? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. A Painful Connection You can explain Russia's poor performance uh, using cyber tools uh, with two things. First, the Russians just did a terrible job planning. Uh, they thought this was going to, they believed their own propaganda, which is always a mistake, and thought this was going to be a stroll in the park. They'd be welcomed with open arms. Um, boy, we could have told them that almost never happened. Um, so they didn't put a lot of effort into bank. You know, if you think you're going to own something in two weeks, you're not going to break it. The second thing is the Ukrainians learned from earlier Russian attacks, particularly in 2014 on critical infrastructure. The, the, the Russians have been poking at the Ukrainians for years, and they were able to cobble together uh, a fairly strong defense. Uh, and so Ukraine shows us that defense can be uh, superior to offense in cyber warfare if you do the right things. So I think it's those two things, bad planning on the Russian side, uh, strong Ukrainian defense. James Lewis is the Vice President and Director of Strategic Studies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also previously a diplomat and a member of the Senior Executive Service with extensive negotiating, political, military, and regulatory experience, as well as a senior advisor for numerous UN groups of governmental experts specializing in information security. On top of that, he's also part of the long-running two-track dialogue with the Chinese Institutes of Contemporary International Relations and an expert on the development of national cyber doctrines. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. No, the Russians made a massive effort. So uh, the denial of service barely counts as an attack. It's, it's more like it's spray painting graffiti. Uh, but they went after critical infrastructure. They went after networks. We know although they went after uh, satellite terminals. Um, uh, they went after government agencies, ministries. So it was a it was a broad, although uncoordinated, attack uh, using advanced cyber tools that they had developed uh, months in advance uh, to attack the Ukrainians. Most analysts watching this field have been worried about the potential of Russia unleashing a whole bunch of zero-day vulnerabilities. If you want a really deep dive on what these are, go check out our full cyber warfare piece. But to oversimplify very quickly, zero-day vulnerabilities are kind of like little worms, where a country would find a vulnerability in their enemy system and plant this little worm. These worms then sit in the system for ages, dormant, unknown to your enemy. Then when you do want to launch your attack, you tell these worms that have been sitting there for ages to all wake up at once and carry out their attacks. So many assume Russia had a bunch of zero-day vulnerabilities in the Ukrainian system that had not been discovered yet, but we haven't seen any of the impacts that we assume something like this would cause. So in your opinion, did the Ukrainians manage to clean them all up before the Russians got a chance to use them, or did Russia never get them in? Or is Russia still saving them for another day, as you really only get one shot to use these as a surprise weapon? Because once you launch them, and the other side stabilizes everything, they then get to patch them out. So you really only get one shot with these things. What do you think the likely scenario here is? 
The Russians kind of tipped their hand with their earlier attacks. And so the Ukrainians had thought uh, a little bit about what they needed to be prepared to do. And I think the biggest things that the Ukrainians uh, gave the Ukrainians an advantage were um, they, with the help of some external parties, both in the private sector and a couple of governments, um, did a good job of monitoring uh, Russian cyber attacks and identifying them as they came in within within uh, a few hours. Uh, second, they had thought a lot about how to distribute the services they used. And so using cloud, putting things, data and services outside of Ukraine, that turned out to be very useful. And the Russians have been unwilling to go after, you know, for obvious, despite all their bellicose rhetoric, um, they're not going to attack you know, the big cloud providers who are mainly American. Uh, and third, the Ukrainians um, reacted quickly. And that's probably the most important lesson here is monitor, identify, and react quickly so that they were able to, um, with help, again, from uh, a couple governments, uh, including Estonia, which ought to know how to deal with the Russians, they were able to react quickly and shut down attacks before they'd done too much damage. I, off the top of my head, a guess would be, and this is anecdotal, would be usually within two or three hours. And in in the real world, in the peacetime, um, companies can go for months before they realize they've been hacked. Uh, the Ukrainians did a much better job. So we know the Ukraine has countries like Estonia and the United States and Poland all backing them and fighting on their side in the cyber conflict here. But what sort of operations has the EU been carrying out? How influential have other countries been within this conflict? They're not fighting a cyber war. They're helping because they're not attacking. Uh, and so we haven't seen, you know, every once in a while people at Cyber Command make noises about how they're defending forward or something. I, I don't think that's right. Um, because we haven't seen the Russians particularly knocked off, uh, knocked off balance uh, by any attack. But you've got companies helping the Ukrainian, Ukrainians identify uh, Russian attacks and respond quickly to them. And that includes... Uh, not just the U.S., but also the U.K., which has uh, exceptional cyber capabilities. Um, and I'm told uh, the Dutch, who also have very strong cyber capabilities, have have helped. And of course, the Estonians have been pretty frank about it. They've, ever since the Russians uh, poked them, gosh, what, 15 years ago, uh, they've put a lot of effort into this. So. Those four countries alone give you a big advantage, and there might be others, some of the Scandinavian countries, who have also have strong cyber capabilities, may have helped, but um, it's a pretty good suite of allies there for the Ukrainians. And are the EU or Estonia keeping their operations to within Ukrainian borders, or are they starting to go after Russian infrastructure within the Russian Republic? It appears to me that the Ukrainians have uh, gone after uh, Russian information resources. No one has attacked Russian critical infrastructure. Right? So that's one of the problems we have with cyber warfare is in 1998, the U.S. put out a, a, a presidential directive, PDD-63, that talked about how cyber attacks would attack critical infrastructure, you know, sort of like a, a, a proxy kinetic weapon. And a lot of times we still think like it was 1998, and it's not. Right. So um, you would want to go after the data resources, the information resources, the network resources, more than the actual infrastructures for electricity or water. We haven't seen that, but 
I think the Ukrainians have been very active. I don't know how successful, but very active in cyber espionage, in interfering with uh, uh, some of the Russian activities. So it's a different kind of war than maybe what people have expected. So some people pointed to Russia's recent disconnection from the wider internet and the nation's building of its own intranet, which that intranet then connects to the American-led internet. Did this end up being a major protection for the Russians from outside attacks, or is that not really what it's designed to do, and it's more useful for shaping Russian internal discourse in times of riot or trouble? I love the disconnected internet one because it's never true. And so uh, there's always some connection, right? There's always some way in. Unless, you know, if you're North Korea, you can be disconnected. Even they are well connected because that means no international phone calls, no connections to the global financial system, nothing for uh, businesses that now rely entirely on cloud and internet. So, of course, the Russians have tons of connections. I mean, they've done a fairly good job of cutting out Western information sources, alternate narratives. Fair, not, not as good as the Chinese but they're not disconnected. I mean, people say stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's always, when someone tells you they're, they're disconnected from the internet, that usually means they're vulnerable. Now that we're six months into this stage of the conflict, are you seeing the Russians starting to shift their cyber doctrines and try new strategies in the field? The Russians have done a couple things with mixed success. In the places they've taken over, they've been able to reconfigure uh, the internet and telecom connections so that it's no longer a Ukrainian system, it's part of Russia. And that gives them a little bit of an advantage. Um, they've made an effort to engage. And one of the interesting things about this war is you're seeing a blend uh, of cyber, electronic warfare, information warfare. It's, it's, it doesn't fit well into the boxes we created years ago, right? So the Russians have an electronic warfare system that has drones. You know, it's a it's a vehicle. It comes with, I think, four drones. Um, the drones are, if, I don't know if people may not know what a stinger is, but a stinger is basically a, a device that emulates a cell phone tower. So when you call on your phone, instead of connecting with the cell phone, the real cell phone tower, you connect with this proxy device. And that, of course, gives the person who's owning the device access to your content and the ability to um, monitor calls, the ability to inject calls. So the Russians have this EW system that includes drones that capture telecom that act as like flying cell phone towers. And they use it to send messages to uh, Ukrainian troops. You know, it's don't know how effective it is, probably not very effective. They have blended uh, EW and cyber, uh, not very well, but they're at least making an effort. And I think that's the biggest change is they've realized um, they're going to need to get control of the networks. And controlling the networks is important because one of the changes in this war is, um, and this is actually what I'm doing research on, everybody is an intelligence collector. If you have a mobile phone, you could be an intelligence collector. It's, it's kind of annoying because <laughs> it's not you, you don't need to, you know, used to, the U.S. used to spend billions of dollars on what they would call exquisite capabilities to collect uh, imagery and signals. And now you can do it with your, your darn $100 cell phone, right? Uh, it's got sensors on it. It's got a camera. Uh, you can probably get an internet connection that might let you use some of the programs that listen, let you listen into mobile calls. 
Um, one of the reasons to think about how the Russians were put at a disadvantage is they weren't expecting this kind of broad resistance, broad intelligence collection. And they don't really know how to manage it. But one way you could manage it is by taking control of the internet connections to get send them through Russia by jamming or interfering with mobile signals uh, or by uh, creating these sort of false uh, cell phone towers as a way to do it. So they're, they're struggling. They're, it's like if you wanted a sort of cheap and not perfect example, in the 1973 uh, war where the uh, Syrians and the Egyptians invaded Israel, um, there was a shock to the world because they had uh, Russian anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, and the Israelis were unprepared for that. Uh, we were unprepared for it, right? And so the Russians were unprepared for this new kind of intelligence activity that the Ukrainians have done so well. In uh, The Ukrainians thought in advance, it looks to me, it looks like they thought about how do you you just get everybody have everybody calling on their phone and saying, "Hey, I saw a tank, right?" Because how do you how do you collate that? How do you prioritize it? How do you assign uh, resources to hit the target? You have to have thought about that in advance. And the Ukrainians have done pretty well, and I think the Russians are trying to figure out now how do we deal with this environment that is different from any war that has has ever been seen. In the early stages of the war, particularly anonymous message boards and places like 4chan. There was a lot of talk of groups like Anonymous, as an example, banding together to crash the Russians as a lot of private citizens. Did these freelance or amateur groups actually make much of an impact on the conflict? No, it's ridiculous. They don't, <laughs> they don't have any real capabilities. And so one of the one of the problems in general for cyber conflict is that it's 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 a domain of war and it's also a domain of public relations. So everyone, including some big companies, make these statements uh, that, um, you know, we will do X, we will do Y, we will do Z. And what I always do is take a step back and say, okay, show me the effect. If you can't find this, this is the old, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it count? And the answer is, in this case, no, there's no effect. And so Anonymous made a number of noisy threats, you, you know, Disrupting the Duma, the Russian parliament's website for a couple of hours, is not going to bring Russia closer to victory. It's not going to bring Russia closer to defeat. So that's the metric you want to use. Does this bring me closer to victory? Otherwise, it's irrelevant. And that's where most of these civil actors, actually all of these civil actors fall, except the intelligence collectors in Ukraine. I mean, amazing stuff. There's a program called Web SDR, Software Defined Radio, that lets you listen in over the internet to mobile phone communications. That is where you have a lot of these civil actors listening into, this is where we've gotten some of the data, you know, the data on the Russians complaining about how bad, the Russian troops complaining about how bad things are. But in terms of denial of service attack, who cares, right? It doesn't, it's not gonna move you one inch closer to taking over Kiev. Quite famously, the Russians also built their own version of GPS called GLONASS, and many speculated that by jamming the Russian connection between themselves and GLONASS, tanks and planes would be in major trouble, being not able to navigate anymore. Did people actually manage to jam the connection to GLONASS, and if jammed, was it the Achilles heel in the Russian army that everyone thought it would be? 
there was a picture of a Russian uh, combat aircraft where the guy had, uh, the pilot had taped a, a GPS receiver <laughs> to the front of the cockpit. So um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that uh, bringing down GLONASS would, it's not a bad idea. You know, it, it's the, if, certainly if we got into a fight with the Russians or the Chinese, they would go after GPS. But putting aside the, the technical difficulties of disrupting GLONASS, and I presume it would be on the terrestrial end, you know, not in space. I'm not sure what benefit you get. Uh, because you have actually, you have Baidu, you have GPS, um, the Russians probably could do well enough. I don't know how well their weapons, their, their PGMs are dependent on GLONASS signals. My suspicion is that most people use multiple signals so you, you know you you fire a missile and it uses uh glonass but it might default to gps if glonass is disrupted but the russians are running out of pgms anyhow and you know the, these are sort of peripheral solutions it, it might have been a good idea to disrupt navigation services at the onset of the conflict but right now it's it's not that useful we learned a lot about the russian capabilities from their previous attacks into estonia Ukraine and Central Asia, but does China also try these kind of probing attacks? I mean, the other day we did see China launch a whole flurry of DDoS attacks against Taiwan during the recent visit from Pelosi, but what can we learn from that and what can we learn from other Chinese cyber attacks toward enemies like Taiwan? The, the balance here is always between attack and espionage. And DDoS is, is the amateur hour. DDoS is like spray painting rude slogans on the outside of a building. And so it doesn't, it, it doesn't really have that much effect against a prepared opponent, right? So I don't worry about DDoS. But the Chinese, like everyone, do the balance between the benefits of espionage, using cyber espionage to collect information, and the benefit of disruption, using cyber activities to disrupt uh, opponent systems. And they are maxed out on the espionage side. Uh, they, I don't know precisely, but I would not be surprised to think they had um, stupendous access uh, in Taiwan. And that means they at some point can decide to switch from I'm in the mode of collecting information to I'm in the mode of disrupting services. The Chinese have improved markedly uh, in, in, say, the last 20 years. And they've gone from uh, being noisy collectors of economic information to much quieter and more skillful collectors of national security information. So I, I wouldn't underestimate the Chinese. I mean, we, we can think about what do the Ukrainians do and can Taiwan do that to defend itself against Chinese cyber attacks? Short answer, yes. One part that doesn't come out is like the, the move to the cloud. So you're a Taiwanese business and you have some of your, your most valuable data and some of your most valuable software tools in the cloud. And the cloud could mean a data center in California, in Japan, uh, in Singapore, right? And so that complicates the attacker's task because they say, I want to attack Taiwan, but do I want to get in a war with Japan, the US and Singapore? Probably not. And that's the Russians have run into this problem is that the they have been unwilling to cross the territorial borders of Ukraine and attack cyber targets outside of those borders. The Chinese will have the same problem. If the Taiwanese are smart, I'm sure the big sophisticated Taiwanese tech companies have a lot of their stuff in the cloud. 
just because that's what businesses do now. And that makes them a much harder target. So do you think at any stage in this conflict, the Russians might decide to go over the border and start launching cyber attacks against infrastructure inside Poland or Slovakia or Romania? Or frankly, Russia knows that may open a can of worms and is not looking to escalate this any further? That's an interesting question because uh, NATO has been debating this for 15 years. And so, uh, you know, Estonia was a NATO member. Russia used fairly primitive uh, denial of service attacks against Estonia in 2007. It was when they moved a large and rather ugly Russian soldier statue out of the center of the city. And I just saw in the paper that you, the Estonians are also are again moving Russian memorials to their wonderfulness. And so I hope that doesn't mean the start of another another conflict. But what the Estonians did was they called NATO up and said, hey, we're under cyber attack. What do you do? And, uh, and NATO said in 2000, I, said, I don't know. Um, and so we've had a 15-year discussion that's made progress. NATO is in much better shape because a cyber attack could trigger Article 5, the collective self-defense provision. So if you attack the power grid in Poland and NATO decides, yes, this qualifies as an actual attack that triggers Article 5, you're not just attacking Poland, you're attacking all of the, attacking all of the countries in NATO. And the Russians are obsessed with NATO, um, but they're probably uncertain uh, about launching an attack on a NATO member. You know, a real denial of service isn't going to scare anyone. But if they, if they disrupted critical infrastructure, does that cross the line? Does it come too close to the line? The Russians are uncertain, and that's a good thing. So to bring this interview to a bit of a close, what do you think are the major lessons that the West will take away from this conflict? What have we learned over the last six months, and are these lessons going to be applicable for future conflicts between other major powers, like if China were to go to war with Taiwan? What is your big takeaway from all of this? Three things leap out at me. The first is, well, actually four. The first is you need to go to... Uh, full-scale monitoring. Hard to do in a big country like the U.S. or China because you have thousands of targets. You know, smaller countries, you maybe have a few dozen, but you need to monitor those networks, right? And there's civil liberty implications that would get suspended in a war that you would let the big private actors that do monitoring play a larger role or you would let governments play a larger role. You have to watch what's happening on your networks. The second thing we've learned is you have to respond immediately, right? You have to respond to block the attack, to undo the damage, to remove the, uh, the hostile software. Um, Ukraine has done good at that. Uh, we would need to have that same capability. Uh, the third is you need to think about your, sorry, geeky term, data architecture. Where does your data get stored, right? Is it vulnerable? And for a big country like China or the US, this may not be as much of an issue, but for a small country, really anyone who's not that sort of continental-sized power, um, have a cloud service provider and have your data stored in another country. You know, and that complicates the attacker's task. And finally, think about how you coordinate this civil, civil resistance, you know, the, because that's been so effective in both monitoring Russian activity, encountering Russian propaganda, uh, in giving the Ukrainians an intelligence advantage. So there's four things that I hope we learn from, and there are things that we could do. Uh, you'll notice I didn't use the word deterrence. 
we're not deterring anybody in cyberspace, but we can make defense better so it has an advantage over an attacker. And hopefully some of the attackers, the Russians and the Chinese, uh, will have figured that out. So the war stands at a pivotal crossroad, where neither side is in a position to make that knockout punch, and winter is right around the corner. And as the Mongols and Napoleon or Hitler will tell you, winter in Ukraine makes fighting a bloody muddy mess. Moscow may be hoping that everyone settles in, and this just becomes the de facto borderlines, much like the ceasefire at the end of 2014 or the end of the Transnistrian War, which gave us the de facto borders today. Others will say that this winter will give both sides a chance to catch their breath and prepare for another big swing when the ground hardens up again. Regardless of what happens over that front, a lull in the fighting of a winter will bring about some soul-searching from both sides about their cyber warfare doctrines. Ukraine may take the time to formulate strategies to take the fight to Russia, how Ukraine can be interfering with crucial infrastructure inside Russia, or how Ukraine can release sensitive emails to further alienate the Russian elite from the perturbed population. Russia may take the time to actually come up with a decent cyber strategy, something actually targeted, as setting up a coordinated cyber attack takes a little more time than a Russian general planning an ad hoc tank thrust toward an important bridge. Although it won't be just these two taking time to evaluate the situation. The EU, the US, China are watching this theater very closely. The US is learning firsthand the weaknesses within the Russian systems and gaining mountains of data on how to exploit those Russian systems, as well as the other nations like Kazakhstan and Belarus who share a lot of the same cyber architecture. The Chinese may be taking the data from Ukraine and look to recalibrate their cyber strategies, seeing how the Russians assumed they had done enough propagandic work where they actually believed the Ukrainians would likely turn away from any hard fight and put their guns on the ground. A similar sentiment toward Taiwan is shared by some Chinese cheerleaders. But this war in the staunch Ukrainian defense would probably give pause for thought with even the most fervent supporters. Many inside the Politburo may be asking if Beijing is under similar miscalculations in their thinking about Taiwan. Is their cyber strategy enough? Is it targeted in the right places? All we know is this will make waves within the Chinese doctrines. As I once had told to me, to understand the pivot points in tomorrow's war, you have to observe today's battlefield mistakes. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. We've wanted to do a piece on Ukraine for quite a while now, but it's been too big of a subject to do a single piece on. It's pretty hard to understate how important this moment will be. This moment in time will likely be geopolitically as shaping as Vietnam or the collapse of Yugoslavia. And there's just so much dust up in the air at the moment, to be able to accurately speculate where it all comes down is pretty difficult. What I think I'm trying to say is that we'll be certainly covering this theater more in the future. After last week's episode on aircraft carriers, I had so many of you reach out to me via Twitter or my email with reviews, questions, and personal stories about aircraft carriers and the doctrines, and I absolutely loved it. I responded or had phone calls and great chats with a whole bunch of you, and I was shocked at the amount of messages we actually had come through. I absolutely love connecting and answering all the follow-up questions that so many of you had, and if you want to get in touch again or directly message me or leave your thoughts, you can find all the links and info on our Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok at the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you want to message me directly on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MyKillyDoz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help myself and the team keep this one going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Chad Hansen, 
who is the latest patron to sign up or increase his donation at the time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners like Chad. So if you want to see this continue and you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we'd very much appreciate it. But this episode on Cyborg in Ukraine is once again thanks to you, Chad. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber Warfare and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers by Andy Greenberg for a look at the Russian cyber program. The second is Like a War, The Weaponizing of Social Media by P.W. Singer for a look at how forces like the GRU use social media to influence countries. And the third is Information Warfare in the Age of Cyber Conflict by Christopher White on the doctrination coordination between branches of the military. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Roman Odzachuk, Yuri Shoyl, Gavin Wilde, and James Lewis. All of you are at the forefront of this issue, and we were amazed to be able to have you all on the panel this week. I also want to thank my staff, Webb McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniel Isabella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Thanu, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. I also want to say thanks to our new friend Layla, who did the translations between myself and Yuri. Without this team, there is no way we'd be able to pull stories off like this, and I'm incredibly thankful to have their help on this project. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. Until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit the Redline Podcast dot com.